be in Luke 7 this morning, verses 18 through 35. It's a little bit of a, a larger chunk for us. One of the fun parts about preaching through the Gospel of Luke has been the variety of passages that are contained in the Gospel, the variety of passages that we've had opportunity to study together. It began with birth announcements of John the Baptist and of Jesus, and Luke brilliantly contrasted John the Baptist with Jesus and demonstrated over and over and over again that Jesus is better. Jesus is superior. We've got to walk through some sermons, sermons from John the Baptist, calling people to repentance and to look forward to the coming of the Messiah. We spent several weeks in a sermon by Jesus himself, so we got to walk through preaching We've seen healing narratives. We've seen Jesus casting out wicked angels. We've had stories and narratives of people responding to Jesus by falling before him and confessing their unworthiness to be in his presence. So not surprisingly, we've been astounded week after week by God's word as it points us to our Lord Jesus Christ. Our passage this morning seems to sort of include a bunch of these uh, varieties of aspects of Luke that we've studied, a bunch of these characteristics. There's healing, there's teaching, there's John the Baptist, there's Jesus, and it's sort of all wrapped up into this one passage here, but the overall point remains the same. From the beginning of Luke, Luke chapter 1, verses 1 to 4, we learned that the purpose of the gospel of Luke is that we might have confidence in Jesus, that we might be astounded by him, and therefore our faith would grow. And this passage helps us get there, helps us to see Christ more clearly, and it helps our confidence to grow in him. Now, in ironic fashion... Uh, Luke, by inspiration of the Holy Spirit, uses the doubts of John the Baptist to stoke our confidence in Christ. Point number one this morning, Jesus is the one to come. He's the one that brings the kingdom in verses 18 through 23. The disciples of John reported all these things to him. And John, calling two of his disciples to him, sent them to the Lord, saying, Are you the one who is to come? Or shall we look for another? And when the men had come to him, they said, John the Baptist has sent us to you, saying, Are you the one who is to come? Or shall we look for another? In that hour he healed many people of diseases and plagues and evil spirits. And on many who were blind he bestowed sight. And he answered them, Go and tell John what you have seen and heard. The blind receive their sight. The lame walk, lepers are cleansed and the deaf hear, the dead are raised up, the poor have good news preached to them, and blessed is the one who is not offended by me. So the passage opens with the followers of John the Baptist reporting to John what has happened with the public ministry of Jesus. As we've walked through Luke, John the Baptist has been sort of off the scene for a little while. The first three chapters, we had a lot of information, a lot of passages about who John is, what his role is, what his message was. 
But since chapter 3, we've only had like one mention of his disciples. It wasn't even really about John himself. At this point, in Luke chapter 7, John has been imprisoned by Herod, Antipas. John rebuked Herod because Herod stole his brother's wife. And so in rebuking Herod, John found himself in prison. And Herod had sort of this weird uh, view of John the Baptist. He wanted him dead, yes. He didn't like to be called out in his sin. But he also had to keep peace where he was ruling. And so he knew that to put John the Baptist to death would be bad for him because a lot of people believed that John the Baptist was a prophet. It would be a bad political move. So he kept John the Baptist alive. And then in keeping John the Baptist alive, he actually began to become a little bit intrigued by John and intrigued by John's message. So he, he protected John for a season. He kept John alive, even though his wife desperately wanted him dead. And she would eventually get her wish. But for now, John is in prison. And he's hearing reports from some of those very disciples that came to him, heard his preaching, were baptized in preparation for the coming of Jesus. And verse 18 says, they reported to him these things. Now that, that points us back to the, the immediate context where Jesus has healed the centurion's servant by simply saying the word from afar. And the servant was healed. It involves an uh, Jesus coming upon a funeral and raising the only son of a desperate widow. And so they're reporting this to him. This is what's happening, John. And we might be a little bit shocked about how John responds. He sends his guys back. He sends his disciples back with a question. Are you the one who is to come? Or shall we look for another? The question is a surprise because of everything we know that's true about John up to this point. We know not from Luke, but, but when John saw Jesus, he pointed at Jesus and said, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. In Luke, John said of Jesus, I baptize you with water, but he who is mightier than I is coming. The strap of whose sandal I am not worthy to untie, he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and with fire. Right after John baptized Jesus, Luke said Jesus comes out of the water and the Spirit of God falls down on Jesus like in, in the form of a dove and God the Father speaks from heaven saying, Behold, this is my Son in whom I am well pleased. So we know this to be true about Jesus and John the Baptist, so we're astounded by the question here. How do we understand the question, are you the one who is to come? Well, some have argued that, well, John is discouraged, his circumstances have gotten the best of him, he's in prison and doesn't like it. Others question whether John was even really doubting here. Some commentators that I was reading this week Say, no, John wasn't really doubting. What he was trying to do was encourage his disciples. So he sent his disciples with this question so that they might hear the answer and they might be encouraged. But I'm not sure we need to really try to stretch this story to try to protect John the Baptist. 
right? If, if you've read through the Bible before, you know that over and over and over again, saints have questioned or doubted the Lord in the face of overwhelming evidence. Where would you start with that? Adam and Eve? The beginning of the Bible? What, what greater evidence do you need than walking with the Lord in the garden? Yet they doubted His word. Abraham and Sarah, Moses, Gideon and the throwing out of the fleece. That's not, that's not commended to us. That's picking on Gideon a little bit, that he didn't believe the Lord. He doubted Him. Many of the apostles will doubt throughout this narrative, even though they had ample evidence they walked with Christ. So I believe that John the Baptist finds himself in a long line of men and women who find themselves in a position where they're doubting God's good plan, God's good will, and God's good purpose. But the point of this passage is not really centered on John's doubts. So I don't want to spend a, a, a ton of time here so as to miss the point. But I think there are some clues in the book of Luke that might lead us to, to where the source of John's doubts are, from where they have arisen. Remember in Luke chapter 3 that John's message was primarily one of repentance and impending judgment. The axe is laid at the base of the tree. He said the Messiah is coming with a winnowing fork. He's going to put the wheat over here and he's going to burn up the chaff. And so it makes sense that, that John's doubts are not a, a rejection of Jesus. They're not unbelief. Instead, John seems to be wrestling with his expectations of what the Messiah would be and do. So he asks, are you the one who is to come? Are you the messenger of the covenant in Malachi chapter 3? Are you the son of righteousness in Malachi 4 that will rise and shine on the saints and burn up the wicked? Is this you, Jesus? And so this message is delivered to Jesus. Luke repeats the question word for word, I think, letting us know that this is, this is important, this is part of the purpose for which he is writing to answer this question, is Jesus the one to come? And Jesus' answer is beyond what we would have done in that situation. He's so wise and brilliant. He says, he, he doesn't say, yeah, go back and tell him this. He says, watch this. Watch this. The blind, and it says, in that hour, he begins to heal people. The blind receive their sight. Remember that stunning passage in Luke 4 when Jesus enters the temple and he begins to, to teach and he opens the, the scroll to Isaiah and he reads this passage from Isaiah 61. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And he rolled the scroll up and he set it down. He said, today this has been fulfilled in your hearing, that I am the one who has come. I'm the servant of the Lord. I, I, I'm healing the blind. Likewise, Isaiah 35, 5 talks about this time when, when the kingdom is coming, that the deaf man will receive his hearing, the lame man will walk. 
So when Jesus does these, these miracles and he preaches with an authority, he preaches good news, he preaches with an authority like none has ever heard before, it attests to his person, it attests to his mission, it attests to his identity. The miracles of Christ, yes, they demonstrate his compassion for the person that he, he heals. We've, we've seen that. But they're more than that. They're not just isolated incidents for the good of the person who received the benefit of the miracle. The, these works that Jesus has done are an announcement that he is the Messiah, that the Messiah has come. This is evidence that the works and the preaching of Jesus testify to his person. And he says this as well in verse 23. So blessed is the one who is not offended by me. So, so what he's done testifies to who Jesus is, and so blessed is the one who is not offended by Jesus. Now to be offended here, it means to, to trip up, to stumble. And we understand this language intuitively. We, we understand what it is to trip over Jesus. We use language that way still to this day. Blessed is the one who does not trip over the claims of my work and, and who I am. You see, Isaiah chapter 8, and, and I believe Luke on purpose and Jesus is, is purposely alluding back to Isaiah over and over and over again. In Isaiah 8, the Messiah would be a stumbling block and a rock of offense. So Jesus is saying those who stumble over the claims of Christ, they trip over him, they fall on him, they fall on the rock and are shattered. But to those who are not offended, to those who don't stumble, their faith is built on the sure foundation, Jesus Christ himself, the solid rock. And so again, think about the brilliance of Jesus here. Imagine if John's disciples come and say, Hey, Jesus, John would like to know if you are the one who is to come. And Jesus says, Go tell him yes. And they go and they say, yes, that doesn't help John. Instead, he shows and he tells while continually directing their thoughts and John the Baptist's thoughts back to the Old Testament to solidify John's confidence that, yes, Jesus is the one who is to come. The time of deliverance has come. You see, Jesus, John, well, we should say maybe this first. John the Baptist likely had these expectations, like so many in Israel, that he had to wrestle with. They had an idea of what the Messiah would do and what the Messiah would be like. And a lot of times those ideas involved overthrowing Roman rule. It involved uh, quick judgment. And so Jesus comes, and he's better than any expectation that anyone ever had of him. He far exceeds the level of justice that everyone in Israel thought they wanted. He's more just than anyone in Israel. And at the same time, he is far more gracious than they could have ever dreamed. So this arrival, he is the one to come. This is great news because for those who, who don't stumble over Christ, they're invited into his kingdom. And the second paragraph there tells us it's better to be least in God's kingdom than the greatest prophet to ever live. It's better to be least in God's kingdom than the greatest prophet to ever live. Look in 
verse 24 through 30. When John's messengers had gone, Jesus began to speak to the crowds concerning John. What did you go out into the wilderness to see? A reed shaken by the wind? What then did you go out to see? A man dressed in soft clothing? Behold, those who are dressed in splendid clothing and live in luxury are in king's courts. What then did you go out to see? A prophet? Yes, I tell you, and more than a prophet. This is he of whom it is written, Behold, I send my messenger before your face, who will prepare your way before you. I tell you, among those born of women, none is greater than John. Yet the one who is least in the kingdom of God is greater than he. When all the people heard this, and the tax collectors too, they declared God just, having been baptized with the baptism of John. But the Pharisees and lawyers rejected the purpose of God for themselves, not having been baptized by him. So Jesus has this conversation with the disciples. He sends them back. You know, this conversation may have been happening publicly. So Jesus turns to speak to the crowd concerning John the Baptist. And we've heard a lot about John the Baptist in Luke, as we said, particularly the first three chapters. But here we get Jesus' own words concerning who Jesus is. Before we dive in, just notice quickly how slow and compassionate Jesus is with John. He answers his question first, and then he turns to the crowd, not to condemn John publicly in front front of the crowd, but instead to tell them how great John is. And he does this in, in a series of questions. He says, what 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 did you go out into the wilderness to see? A reed shaken in the wind? Many of you, Jesus is saying, went out into the wilderness. You you went out, you found John preaching there. Why did you go out there? Was it to see the reeds blowing in the wind? Did you go out to check out the scenery? I don't don't know that there's a lot of figurative meaning in in this illustration. I think Jesus is saying, why'd you go out there? Why'd you go out there? To see the reeds blowing in the wind? Of course not. What then did you go out to see? He says, a man dressed in soft clothing. If you wanted to see that, you shouldn't have gone to the wilderness where John the Baptist was. You should have went to a king's palace. You should have looked in the court of the king. You don't go into the wilderness to find a sharp-dressed man. You go to New York's Fifth Avenue. You go to Rodeo Drive. Don't worry, I had to Google that. Anyone who went into the wilderness and is hearing the words of Jesus here went to find John the Baptist. They didn't go to find a man nicely dressed. If they did, they're surely disappointed. They found a messenger of the Lord, the prophet, dressed in camel's clothes and snacking on locusts. But they didn't go out there for that. They went out to hear the prophet. They went to hear the fiery preacher, the messenger of the Lord, John the Baptist. And so notice the high praise then that Jesus offers John. You went out to hear a prophet, and you got more than a prophet. You got the greatest man to ever live. That's what verse 28 says. Among those born of, of women, means everyone born, despite what our world might try to tell us today, everyone who is born is born of a woman. Now, 
what is, what is interesting is what makes John the greatest man born of women, what makes him more than a prophet and the greatest man of all time is that he prepared the people for the arrival of Christ. What made John great is he prepared the people by announcing Jesus. His greatness, true greatness, was his humility, was humbling himself and pointing people to Christ. So don't miss the audacious claim here. I don't mean that like sinfully wrong. It's just this is a bold claim that Jesus is making. This is a huge statement that Jesus is making. Maybe I can illustrate it this way. Um, Labor Day weekend, two years ago, I, I came out to candidate, and, and very few of you knew me. And so imagine if, if Neil were to come up that Sunday, and he were to have said, you know, not many of you know Kyle, this is, this is who Kyle is, um, Kyle, come preach to us. And after I get introduced, I get up and say, you know what, of everyone ever born, there's no one greater than Neil Adrian, because he introduced me. What in the world? This is a bold claim. This is a strong statement. And yet this is exactly what Jesus claims. John the Baptist is great because he introduced someone greater than, than him. He, Jesus, or John's ministry is tied directly to being the forerunner of the Messiah, of the Christ. And that Jesus is far superior. John has already announced this. Jesus is so far superior to John that, that John, just to be associated with Jesus, makes him great. And so Jesus then makes this point. Look at the end of verse 28. No one is greater than John, yet the one who is least in the kingdom of God is greater than he. No one is greater than John, yet the one who is least in the kingdom of God is greater than he. So how can this be? Honestly, minus living in the desert, dressing in camel fur, and eating locusts and honey, minus that, consider, would you rather have your ministry or John's ministry? Would you rather have your role or John's role? Would you rather have your resume or John's resume? Which, which would we choose? Jesus says the, the answer is easy. It's better to be living on this side of the cross. It's better to be living on this side of the cross. And, and so maybe we've missed something about the joy and the glory and the privilege of being in Christ on this side of the cross. There's a joy and a privilege to being born in terms of salvation history at the time that you were born. I don't know if any of you grew up playing... Oregon Trail in computer class. But if you have played that game, you know what it is to be thankful to be living in the time that you're living. Right? In the Oregon Trail, you've got to buy your supplies and you've got to try to make it across the United States to Oregon. And at random, it's just like you're halfway there and it's like you died, you got bit by a snake. You died, you got a fever. You died, you have dysentery. Right? At the end, you had to turn your wagon into a raft and try to raft down the Snake River to, to make it to your destination. You hit one rock, your whole family dies. You lose the game. And every time I played that game, I just thought, man, I'm so glad to be living in the time that I'm living. Although I suspect some of you are like, nah, <laughs> give me the covered wagon. 
and the frontier. But we are given privileges due to the timing of our salvation that the prophets, even prophets like John the Baptist, did not have. I said this before, but it's helpful to remember this. When we were in Malachi, we said, you know, if you were to summarize the Bible into two sections, you might say you have the era of promise, the Old Testament, you have the era of fulfillment. John is the greatest of the prophets because he served as sort of a bridge between the era of promise that looked forward to the Messiah and the era of fulfillment with the coming of the Messiah. John's job, like the other prophets, was to point forward to the coming of Christ, but John is unique that he got to actually point at Jesus and baptize Jesus even. He got to look at him directly and say, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. But Jesus' point is that it's better to be least in in the promise, the era of fulfillment, than to be the greatest of the former era, the era of promise. Peter said it this way in 1 Peter. Concerning this salvation, the prophets who prophesied about the grace that was to be yours searched and inquired carefully, inquiring what person or time the Spirit of Christ in them was indicating when he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the subsequent glories. It was revealed to them that they were not serving themselves, but you in the things that have now been announced to you through those who preach the good news to you by the Holy Spirit Spirit sent from heaven, things to which angels long to look. These prophets were pointing forward. They were inquiring. They were searching. What time? What's going to be the manner? What's this going to be like? And they did it serving us, Peter says. Likewise, Jesus would say this in Luke 10, The eyes that see the things you see are blessed. For I tell you that many prophets and kings wanted to see the things that you see, yet didn't see them. To hear the things that you hear, yet didn't hear them. So we are in a privileged, blessed position to have the the full uh, Bible completed for us so we can look back and know who Christ is. You know, one of the reasons we gather every week is to be amazed again and again that God, in His matchless grace, has called us, He has transferred us, Colossians says, from the domain of darkness to the kingdom of His beloved Son. So that's what we do when we gather. We sing about that, we read it, we pray about it, we preach about it, we baptize new believers as a picture of this gospel, we observe communion every month to remind us of the glory of the gospel. We talk about it at Potluck, we plan 12-week Bible hour classes just to talk about the glory of salvation that we have in Christ. I mean, consider it. Consider the gospel. We think, we think we are big stuff sometimes. We think we're real important, but, but we really aren't, are we? I, I'm just a, a nobody in a, in a sliver of history in a small part of this world. And I've never done anything in my life that the Lord would look at and say, Wow. That's impressive. Nothing. I had nothing in me that would commend myself to God. In fact, I gave every, 
I gave God every reason and excuse and right to blow me away in judgment, to condemn me to eternal separation from Him for my crimes. But Christ has come, and He has taken my place on that cross and borne the weight of my sin. He has won the victory in His resurrection. He has removed the the penalty of sin. And and Psalm 103 says he's removed it as far as the east is from the west. And if that message is not too far below you, if that message is not too far down here, if you're willing to stoop and to humble yourself and come to Christ, you might have that same hope that's found in the gospel of Christ. You might be welcomed by him into his kingdom. You know, we're not surprised at this point in our walk through Luke that it's the tax collectors and not the religious elite who hear that message. It's the ones who know they're sinners who hear the hope in that message. And so Luke includes this little parenthetical remark here. When all the people heard this, and the tax collectors too, they declared God just, having been baptized with the baptism of John. But the Pharisees and lawyers rejected the purpose of God for themselves, not having been baptized by Him. So, they acknowledge God's justice then. You know, some of your translations may even say they justified God. Right? That doesn't mean they made God just. It means they declared Him to be just. They acknowledge His justice. They demonstrate that they are relying on God through their baptism. Then They, they are demonstrating the truthfulness of their profession by following in John's baptism, the baptism of repentance. But not so with the Pharisees. Not so with the religious lawyers, the the scribes. They rejected John's invitation to repent of their sin in preparation for the coming of Christ. They refused to be baptized, thus announcing to all that they had no need of repentance. That was the purpose of John's baptism. Prepare your heart for the coming of Christ. And so Jesus takes up this last group In that third portion of our text this morning, look in verse 31. The Pharisees and lawyers rejected the purpose of God for themselves. They refused to repent. To what then shall I compare the people of this generation, and what are they like? They are like children sitting in the marketplace and calling to one another. We played the flute for you, and you did not dance. We sang a dirge, and you did not weep. For John the Baptist has come eating no bread and drinking no wine, and you say he is a demon. The Son of Man has come eating and drinking, and you say, look at him, a glutton and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. Yet wisdom is justified by all her children. You can almost hear the exasperation in Jesus' voice. To what then shall I compare this generation, and what are they like? They've rejected Christ, and that's point number three. Many reject Christ and His kingdom, lacking repentance. What shall I compare this generation to? What are are they like? 
In this context, this generation would refer to the the Pharisees, yes, the lawyers, yes, but, but by and large to unbelieving Israel and their rejection of Christ. They see no need of repentance and thus no need to be rescued from the penalty of their sins. So that's, that's what this passage refers immediately to. But we know that this is an attitude that's in every generation, in every successive generation. And so Jesus says, I've got the perfect illustration. I know what to compare this, this unbelieving generation to. It's this, spoiled children. Some have gone so far as to label this the parable of the brats. Now, we love children at Southern Hills, right? We consider it a blessing to have little children wiggling, even if, even if during the sermon. It's a blessing when a child turns to mom or dad and attempts to whisper a question, but you know that whispering is impossible for a child. We rejoice when we hear the cry of a newborn in our midst. We, we rejoice that God has chosen to bring young people and young families and children into this body. We rejoice in that. But part of, part of being a, a parent even is recognizing that the same kid who has you laughing uproariously one moment is driving you crazy the next And so nothing I'm about to say undermines the fact that we love children, but Jesus is using this illustration to say they are like immature, childish kids. And Jesus describes a familiar scene among kids who play. One set of children wants to make all the rules. They want to set the standard for what game they play and when they play it and how they play it. And there's another set of children, the the text says they're calling out to one another. There's another set of children that just refuse to play the game no matter what. So then you have the one side, the rule setters, complaining. We tried to play a happy game and you wouldn't join us. We tried to play a sad game and you did not join in. And so I think that what Jesus is doing is he's using both of these manifestations of how children often act to talk about the childish, immature response of unbelieving Israel. First, they wanted to set the rules. They wanted to demand the rules. They demanded that God submit to their plan and their timing and what they desired, their agenda. When we play this song, dance. When we play this song, weep. Jesus is saying that This generation is a a generation of people who want to demand who God is and what He does. They want to tell God what to do. And we said that this is evident in every generation since. It's not far clearly from the generation in which we live. Jesus, in fact, often uses that phrase, this generation, to just capture all of those who uh, reject God, prefer evil, and live in unbelief, no matter what time they live. So we see even in our generation that it's so common to dismiss Jesus's teaching, to pick and choose what we want to believe about what Jesus truly said. And the truth is there's only one Christ. We don't get to pick our particular version of what we want Jesus to be, and I will believe in that Jesus and I will I will worship that Jesus. 
You see, we, we are, we are con- constantly and consistently seeking to know the one true Jesus as we see him more clearly in the pages of Scripture. So some have opted for a liberal Jesus who sort of affirms everyone in their own sin. He would never judge. He would never demean anyone. He's just sort of this hippie character that's cool with anything. Let's just go with the flow. Somebody wrote, Why anyone should have troubled to crucify the Christ of liberal Protestantism has always been a mystery. You've got this Jesus over here that supposedly just affirms everyone, even in their sin, goes along with whatever you want to do. Why would anybody have killed that Jesus? But on the other hand, we've got uh, maybe a patriotic Jesus who spends his whole day strategizing how to make America better because Americans are his chosen people. We see instances of, of churches singing songs, not about the greatness of God, but about the greatness of our nation. I've seen videos of churches inviting unsaved politicians and unsaved political commentators to address their people. It's not the purpose of the church. I saw this really awkward interview one time where this guy thought the political commentator that he invited to address his megachurch was a Christian, asked him how he became a Christian, and the guy says, I worked really, really hard, and I put away some sin. And it put this guy in a really weird spot. So he's got to put the gospel in that guy's mouth. I heard this last week a politician stand up, and she was fighting for the integrity of our elections, which is important. It's good. We ought to have elections that are sure and safe. I'm not saying that. But she quoted this passage. She quoted the Bible to defend her stance on elections, 2 Peter 1.10. Therefore, brothers... Be all the more diligent to confirm your calling and election. For if you practice these qualities, you will never fall. She's quoting God's word, and we laugh because it's it's so bad. It's such an obvious abuse and misuse of Scripture. But I hope, too, at the same time, that that bothers you. I hope the abuse of Scripture, the, the twisting of Jesus and God's word to meet her end is repulsive. Here's what our demeanor should be. So we're tempted to kind of create a Jesus that that we want. And here's our demeanor. We want to know and love the true Jesus. We want to know and love the Jesus of the Bible. We want to be biblical. Our goal isn't to be affirmed in what we already believe. Our goal is to search Scripture and to know Christ. One pastor said this, The false God we're up against is bobblehead Jesus Jr., who never judges, never interferes, never demands, and can't save us because he is us. We've made him in our own image. Sweet, precious, miniaturized Jesus must make way for the glorious Jesus of the gospel. These images of who we want Jesus to be must give way to what Scripture says is true about Christ. So this generation, they want to tell God who to be, and it's not unlike our generation. We want Jesus to be on our side, but we, we don't want to move to his side. We want to move him to our side. And so this generation is also like the children who refuse to play no matter what. 
This generation is like the other children who refuse to play no matter what. Jesus gives the explanation in verse 33. For John the Baptist came, and he, he came not eating bread, not drinking wine. And you say he has a demon. And then Jesus came, he ate bread, he drank wine. And you say a glutton and a sinner. John lived a very ascetic lifestyle and seeking to fully devote himself to the Lord. John, we, we mentioned, is a fiery preacher demanding repentance, lest his hearers fall into condemnation. The axe is laid at the base of the tree, and they rejected that message. They said he's demon-possessed, and here comes Jesus. He ate and he drank wine. He hung around tax collectors and sinners. He was compassionate, where the Jewish leaders would have never shown this level of compassion. They would have never shared a meal with a drunk or a tax collector. And they say, they, they accuse Jesus as well. Look at him, he's a drunk, and he's, he's hanging around tax collectors and sinners. You see, the, the rejection of Christ was not about the delivery of the message. And, and please, the, the, Jesus preached condemnation as well, and John preached the good news. I'm not saying this is like the only thing they ever preached. But what I am saying is no matter who came, no matter how they preached, no matter what they emphasized, they rejected the message because there's something more fundamental at stake. You see, there can be a hundred excuses for not embracing Christ. But I think at the root, at the, at the heart of refusing to embrace Christ is a refusal to let go of the sin that we love. You see, the truth is, if we're going to come to Christ, we have to reckon with both the judgment of God and the grace of God that's beyond our comprehension. We have, to, we have to deal with both of those. And how do we do that? We, we look at the cross where the justice of God and the grace and compassion of God are seen most clearly to the glory of God. He alone could come up with this plan that Jesus would bear the, the right fury and wrath that I deserve because he's gracious and compassionate. Dave read earlier, he's, God is slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. Yet in this crooked and corrupt generation, there are those who, don't, who, who seek to co-opt Jesus for their own gain. But verse 35, yet wisdom is justified by all her children. What's going on at the end of Luke, verse uh, 35 there, there are spoiled children trying to tell God what to do and demand that he conform to their message and their will. And then there are the children of wisdom who see the glory of Christ, turn from their son, and follow him wherever he leads. They see the need for their repentance, and they turn. In 1944, there was a second lieutenant in the Japanese army named Hiru Onada. And he was sent to the Philippine island of Lubang. And he was given very strict orders. You go to this little island and you resist the American advance until you receive other orders. Six months later, in 1945, the war ended. Hiru never got the news. He never heard that the war was over. And so he's isolated on this island. He's cut off from any sort of news. And for 30 years, Hiru kept fighting World War II. He would steal food from villages. 
He would take shots at people every once in a while. Eventually, the, the people in the Philippines, they got frustrated of people even getting killed by this guy. And so they flew over and they dropped these leaflets over Hiru that said, the war's over, you, you can come out. But Hiru didn't believe the message. He just persisted. He said, no, this is a trick of the Americans to get me to surrender. I have strict orders not to surrender. They even brought his brother out from Japan, and they gave his brother a loudspeaker and said, Hero, come out, brother, the, the war is over. And he says, oh, no, they've tricked him into announcing this. It's just a trick to get me to come out. He fought World War II until 1974, when finally Japan sent over his former commanding officer from the time of the war and commanded him to surrender. And he came out. Now this man wasted 30 years of his life refusing to believe the message that the war is over. And 2,000 plus years ago when Jesus was born, the angels announced that Christ has brought peace. In his death, burial, and resurrection, Jesus has announced to the world that, that he has accomplished for us. What we can never accomplish. He has won the war. But, but our response then is to lay down our guns. To lay down our guns. To turn from our sin and to rest in Him. And some of you this morning, you need to turn. You need to come to Christ for the first time. You need to believe in the gospel of Jesus Christ. That He indeed died on that cross in your place and rose again from the dead to accomplish your salvation. Some of you need to believe, and some of us, many of us, most of us, just need to re be reminded, we're not crazy. We're not crazy for giving it all up to follow this Jesus. We're not crazy for selling everything we have to buy this field that has this pearl that's infinitely worthy. We're not crazy. We keep pursuing Christ. Let's pray together. Father, we love you. Our love is weak at times, Lord, but you have given us a new heart. And so, Father, I pray that you would magnify Christ in our hearts, that we'd rejoice that he is indeed the one who is to come. He has come, accomplished our salvation. And, Lord, as was prayed earlier, we do long for that day where he returns and establishes his physical rule. Lord, May you be kind to us, work in our hearts through your word, in Jesus' name, amen.